and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Ozband, our Daf of the Day, Masachet Ketubot, Daf Ayin Aleph, page 71. So our Gemara here is going to talk about what we talked about in the Mishnah, and we're going to see where it goes. I'm, I'm particularly interested in something that I don't actually have a good answer for, so perhaps somebody, one of our co-learners, you'll let us know, you'll have a better answer. Um, the Gemara in the middle of Amar Aleph, presents what's basically a continuation of the Mishnah. So you'll recall we talked about somebody who vows in such a way that he obligates his wife that she won't be able to taste any of whatever particular type of or any type of produce. And the Gemara said, and the Mishnah rather said that it, that they should get divorced and she would be entitled to the ketubah. So then the, the Gemara here goes on to say that this is, you know, according to Rav, where there's no contradiction between the different parts of the Mishnah, which was part of the previous discussion on the daf that we didn't really talk about. Meaning that Rav, the, when we say that there's no contradiction between the different elements of the Mishnah, it's to say that here there's an it's an unspecified vow, meaning achad mikola peirot is not it's not like saying a particular kind of fruit, for example, right? And it's not for specific amounts of time. So the implication would be that he would have to divorce her because it's unspecified and it feels like that kind of eternity type of oath. Um, but then in that first clause, right? He the which is earlier, right? It says that there is a there is a specific specific time, excuse me, and therefore it would seem that you know that would limit it, and then the divorce wouldn't be um, necessary. So again, kan bistam. Here in this section, it says it in a in a abstract, right? There's no definitive time. Kan The other place, it's um, explicit. El kasha. But for Shmuel, according to Shmuel's approach, and this is a whole reference to a dispute between Rav and Shmuel that we're not really talking about here, but it's for it's previously on this stuff. Meaning, if you learn the part before where I've started talking, you'll find it. The reason I'm not going into it is not because it's not valuable or interesting, but because if I do that, I will have no time to get to the part that I want to focus on. Hachaba uh, ma'eskinan. So the Gemara answers. You know, what are we talking about here? Kigon shenadrahi v'kiyem la'ihu. So what happens? We're talking about a case where she has vowed herself to prohibit herself from tasting that produce. And then he kind of put that into action, right? Kiyem la'ihu. He um, authorizes the vow. V'kasava Rebbe Meir. And that is then like Rebbe Meir's position. Hu notein etzba ben shineha. And this is the part that I want to focus on. He gives a finger, he puts a finger between her teeth. So let me just make sure that we know what's going on with this, you know, the case. Namely, she makes a vow. She's not going to taste the produce. He authorizes the vow. And because she herself is the person who made the vow, the presumption is that she's not going to look to get out of it, right? And because she's not going to look to get out of it, then, and because he's authorized it, then they need an immediate divorce. And then Rebbe Mayer, who is the one who said that um, in the Mishnah, right, the assumption is that he is the Tanakama who says that they have to divorce. And then, um, and then this expression of that he puts, the husband puts a finger between her teeth means that 
he is officially authorizing the thing that she had said she had taken upon herself, which by itself might not be such a problem, except for the fact, and it might not even count as an oath, except for the fact that he has authorized it. What does this mean? He puts a finger between her teeth. He is basically allowing her or causing her to bite him. And the implication is that by doing so, he is, you know, kicking the, the oath into effect. And then once he does so, it's his responsibility. And then once it's his responsibility, they have to divorce and he has to pay the ketubah. What's interesting to me here, of course, and your Dana, you know, was teasing me beforehand when we were preparing that, of course, I was going to be interested in this, that this expression of putting a finger between her teeth and even this idea that, well, then, of course, she's at, you know, he's at risk of getting bitten by her. Um, why this is the expression that means you know, certifies the oath or kicks the vow into into effect. I find it to be very strange. I don't find it intuitive or or logical, and I don't really have a handle on why the idea that he might, why she might bite him, means that the oath is put into effect. I, if it were a matter of um, confirmation, let's say that that's really the oath that she wants. So then, then I get it, right? Meaning, if she actually went to bite him, but it doesn't. The the freeze isn't focusing on her capacity to bite him, right? It's focusing on his action that he puts his finger in her mouth. I also don't know if this was literal. Is this something, an action that the couple actually took to make sure that the oath kicked in? Or is it simply a, an expression that means, in fact, the oath kicked in? Look, I'm using euphemism all the time here to say the oath kicked in. What does it mean kicked in? It didn't kick anything, right? It's it's an expression. So this expression in the Gemara, and we're going to see it several times in a row here, is still not something that is as I say, it's not familiar and it's not intuitive to me. And if anybody has a good explanation or even a less than good explanation as, you know, a hypothesis as to why this is the expression, um, I would be grateful for that. So the Gemara goes on, right? And because again, it's talking about Rebbe Mayer, but some of Rebbe Mayer who notain etzva ben shina, does Rebbe Mayer also say that he needs to, you know, that it's tantamount to putting his figure between our teeth, again, making the vow come into effect. Vahatanya, we have a brighter that seems to contradict that. So we've got an example of a case where a woman took an oath, and she, and in that case, she prohibits herself um, like a nazir, right? Meaning all of the things that would be prohibited to a nazir, I guess shaving is not so usually so such an issue for the woman. Maybe it's not impossible, but it's certainly not standard. But certainly grapes or coming in contact with a dead body, right, or taking a haircut. And then her husband heard the fact that she was taking this oath, and he did not nullify it, meaning this is one of those strange and I think, again, perhaps difficult for modern ears to hear, the idea that a husband can nullify an, a, a wife's, you know, mis, uh, misstated vow just by virtue of being her husband. But then Rebbe Meir and Rebbe Huda, they say that she has put her finger between her own teeth, right? So then it doesn't seem to be a matter of the husband being able to be harmed by the woman, right? In this case, she's put her finger between her own teeth. He didn't nullify it. If he, wa if he had wanted to nullify it, he could have. And if he didn't nullify it, and he also said... I don't want a wife who takes oaths. Then they could get the. Then they would get divorced, and the husband does not even have to pay the ketubah. But again, what's of interest to me is here this expression that she has put her finger between her own teeth, meaning she has somehow. I don't know. I don't know if this means like she's put the clamp on herself, so to speak. 
But again, to me, this would mean, I guess it makes more sense. To, I'm thinking this out loud as you hear me, right? This idea that by taking the oath um, and then committing to it, right, then she has kind of put the screws to herself that she has to do it. So does that is that what it means that when the husband puts his finger between in her mouth, it means that he is in fact confirming that she has to fulfill the oath? Maybe, maybe that's maybe it's that simple. I'm not sure. Rabbi Yosi, Rabbi Elazar, Omrim, who noted Espa Ben Shina. Rabbi Yosi, Rabbi Elazar say that when they, when he, from the moment he says he's not going to be made fear than that, he does not, he's not going to nullify the oath. Then he is putting his finger in her teeth. Not she's doing it to herself, but he's doing it to her. Or again, finger in her teeth. Lafifaf imratzah balafer yafer. And the conclusion, I mean, the Pesach Halacha is really the same, whether she's doing it to herself or he's doing it to her by refusing to, to undo the vow. At the end of the day, it's still, he could have done it, he could have nullified it. And if he and if he decides, or if he says he doesn't want uh, uh, a woman who takes, a wife who takes vows, then they um, divorce and this case, in this case, um, be, I guess because it's a putting the onus of responsibility upon him for not being made for the netter, for not nullifying the vow, she's entitled to the ketubah. So the Gemara says, no, switch that around. So we're going to switch who, which, of the, which of the sages said which position but the different views are still represented in the same way. And then lastly, what does Rabbi Yossi say that, you know, this idea that she put her finger in her own mouth, so the Gemara says, hang on, didn't we already learn in the Mishnah that if somebody, and it's talking about the case of the woman who is now going to be, by his words, she can't use whichever particular kind of adornment or perfume. And Rabiosi said that for poor women, right, then he didn't establish a set amount of time for that vow and they have to get divorced and he has to give the ketuba. So according to all of that, um, then this Mishnah, right, ends up being the case where, in fact, the husband allowed the vow to go through or, in fact, um, authorized it. Right? In which case, Rabiosi would also agree that then it falls on the husband's responsibility and he has to give her the ketubah. At the end of the day, the, the real discussion, you know, in this Gemara is about whether she's entitled to the ketubah. Um, but, you know, and, and really the dispute between Rav and Shmuel that's earlier on the daf is really leading into the a discussion of the different opinions here. And it is true that I'm focusing on the language as opposed to the halacha in this particular um, daf, meaning for me, that's, what grabbed me just because I find it to be such a both kind of picturesque, horrifying, dramatic expression that doesn't quite line up with what it seems to do. At least that's my my intuitive sense. Um, and as I say, I invite all comers to to enlighten me. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really interesting choice of language. I mean, I do think it's one of those things that probably for the people who wrote the Gemara or however the Gemara evolved, it made a lot of sense to them. And it's one of those things that just, you know, for us translating it into English or just even hearing those words, you know, in Hebrew, just don't make a lot of sense to us. I mean, it's, it's a beauty of language. 
that we seem to be missing. And I'm upset that we're missing it, that we're not totally getting it. Um, I'm going to move on to Amidbet. We have a new Mishnah here that continues um, this issue of vows that a wife could make. Somebody makes a vow um, that uh, her his wife cannot go to her father's house. So um, if the father is in the same city as her, right, then that vow is allowed to stand, that Nedzer is allowed to stand for up to one month, um, and she can stay his wife. But if it's for two months, he has to divorce her and basically give her the ketubah, because it's just, and what I find interesting about this Mishnah is, is that uh, you know, there's something very protective about the women here that, yes, when you read in the Torah, the piece that a husband can basically, you know, sort of anybody can make a vow here, the the mission is basically coming and saying like a vow that's going to be cruel. And we're going to see a load of examples here. We're just not going to allow that marriage to stay. Let's say the father lives in a different city, right? So if it's through sort of one festival season, right, until the next festival, the next regal, right, that either being Pesach, Shavuot, or Sukkot, it's allowed. But if he says it has to be through all three regalim, which is basically a year, or, you know, if you do it Sukkot to Shavuot, maybe it's a little bit less, but, you know, it's a long period of time. Then again, she, you know, is freed from the marriage and has given her ketubah. And this one I found to be very interesting. Somebody who takes a vow that his wife cannot go to a house of mourning or to a house of feasting for a wedding, right? In other words, it's basically saying, I mean, it's, this is abusive behavior. Like she cannot participate in the community. You'd say you take ketubah, right? She gets divorced and gets her ketubah. Why? Because he's locking the door in front of her. And so, again, what the Gemara is, the Mishnah, excuse me, is saying is like these types of vows are not allowed. You're just not allowed to have them within a marriage. And yes, I'm reading this totally with a modern sensibility, but there's a protection here against abusive marriage. Now, could one do these things without making it a vow? Yes. But I I don't know. Like, I I think if somebody really if the Beitin, because remember, the Beitin at this time really had power got hold of somebody who was sort of forcing his wife into these behaviors, I think there probably was power of the Beitin to intervene. But if he claimed he he did this because of something else, meaning he was concerned, I don't know, she was not going to behave appropriately or something like that, then maybe he he is allowed. He's, he's Rashai. Amar La, let's say he says to his wife, Almanacha Tamarni right this vow the nether that i give it will be void on the condition you tell so and so what you told me or what i told you right oh masha mart laugh or you know what i sorry or what i told you right or you know he says she has to fill something and pour it out into gar- garbage in other words he takes a vow and he makes the vow basically conditional, meaning he's willing to uh, nullify the vow as long as she does something else. Like it's, it's a condition. She has to tell him something that he didn't know or do some kind of ridiculous act. Again, he must uh, divorce her. And the Gemara will go on and explain 
uh, more about this later, so we won't spend too much time on this now. But again, a very, very protective mission, I think, in the context of marriage itself. So the Gemara immediately says, well, I just you- want to say, yeah. I just want to say one thing um, in our Nisnister category, um, this phrasing of um, to lock the door before her. Right. So I don't know about everybody else, but I've been hearing a lot of discussion about Prusbal as we come to the end of a Shemitah year. And I'm sure we'll talk about Prusbal many other times. But that phrasing of to not lock the door behind in front of people who would come to do the right thing, I think, is you know, an important phrasing in this Gemara. And it's, I guess, most familiar to me from the from the phenomenon of Prisbol, which is about paying, repaying loans and how people can then kind of, they give their loans over to the to the court to hold them. And it's a loophole to enable uh, people to be willing to lend because otherwise if they would think that the Shemitah would, the end of the Shemitah year would cancel out all their loans, who would lend, right? So, so the... It's really the phrasing. Again, I'm stuck on the phrasing of the day. Um, yes. But I feel like you, in your Nisnistar category, it's maybe a stretch, but it's kind of there. It's kind of there. All right. Well, you're, you're very stuck. This is this this staff is full of language for you. So the Gemara then goes on and right away says, Hagufakasha, right? Talking about the first part of this Mishnah, says the Mishnah is difficult. Amart right? You said that if the vow has to be made, you know, kept for one festival, Right then, he's allowed to. It stands. Hashnaim But if it's for two, right? But what, so what we get from this is, is that if he, you know, forbade her for two, right? Then he should have to d- divorce her and give her ketuba. But the end of the mitzvah says, "Amai sefa shlosha so what's with the case of two? Is it that he has to get divorced or is it that it stands? Because you went from one to three, right? Those are the two extreme cases. You don't talk about two. Amar Bai, Seifa Atan Lekohanek. So Bai says that latter clause is a case of the wife of a priest, right? Which basically we allow sort of more time before divorce is uh, required because once a Kohen divorces his wife, they're not allowed to get remarried. But Rabbi Yehuda, he, and this is the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Bar Ulam Arlo Kasha, Kamba Ridufa, Kamba Shaina Ridufa. Rabbi Bar Ula has a different explanation. He says, here the first clause is referring to a woman who's eager. In other words, it's somebody who usually goes back to her father's house. And if her husband prevents her from doing it for more than one regal, it's going to cause her a lot of emotional distress. There, it's somebody who's not so eager. She could take it or leave it visiting her father. And therefore, you're allowed to stretch it to three. Right? So now, once the Gemara has this idea that maybe there's a woman who wants to really visit her father's house, it quotes this pasuk from Shur Hashirim, chapter 8, verse 10, right? That says, then I was in his eyes as one that found peace. This is like a bride who's considered perfect in her father's-in-law's house. And she wants to go and basically tell her father how well it's going with her husband's family. It's actually a very beautiful interpretation of the Pasuk. And then they quote a pasuk from Oshea, chapter 2, verse 18, that says, it shall be on that day, 
says Hashem that you shall call me my husband, Ishi, and you should no longer call me Baali, my master. Remember, this is part of this very famous Nebuah, uh, the beginning of Oshea, uh, where Hashem describes this very difficult relationship uh, with B'nai Israel. And here again, Rabbi Yochanan says, I'm a Rabbi Yochanan, right? This is like a bride in her father-in-law's house after she's already been with her husband, right? Um, and uh, not like an engaged bride who's still in her father's house, who's still going to call her husband Ba'ali, right? It's that, that Pasuk is describing sort of the emotional change that happens with a bride, how initially she may view her husband as 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 Bali, but later she'll view her husband um, as Ishi. So uh, just a little bit of the Gemara here, but a very, very interesting Mishnah that I think, again, you know, as much as I think, you know, particularly Yavamot and particularly Tubot are a little bit difficult, we then sort of see these, like, interesting halachic scenarios where I think, really, the woman is very protected by halacha. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.